Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you that's right, it's the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon back with you for another week. I'm still in Dubai. We're halfway through the fair break tournament. Jeff is in Melbourne in his apartment, I can tell by looking over his shoulder. Hello, Jeff. Hello, hello. Good morning, good evening. Um, yeah, waiting to see whether we do go to Sri Lanka, which the uh, local civil unrest is, uh, is is heightening. There are gas shortages. The anti-government sentiment is increasing. Uh, Cricket Australia apparently are pretty calm and confident that the tour will go ahead, but but, um, yeah, we're keeping an eye on things over there. Yeah, I haven't heard much to the contrary in terms of the tour maybe not proceeding, but yeah, I know that there, there were some uh, concerned parties two or three weeks ago uh, about this. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't really really been following the Australian coverage, but is this getting reported at home now that, that they might not go? No, no. There's, so this is this is why it's a bit odd, is that there's no suggestion that it won't happen, but the, the situation in Sri Lanka is substantially worsening by the day so you know right, it just right. it just seems a little incongruous that the, the the chat is still very upbeat i suppose on far less important matters um we are starting the episode this week right in the teeth at the very deep end of an e- <laughs> ebay auction for uh, an authentic australia a 1994-95 shirt it's an xl so i think it might be more my size than yours but what are we about three minutes to go we're two minutes 50 to go. We've been involved in a bidding war over the last half an hour or so. We're leading the bid. I feel a bit sheepish saying how much we're in, we're in for here, but as people know who've listened to the show for a long time, I, I've done 
daft things like this on eBay before, and I probably will again. I haven't told Rach what I'm doing at the moment. She's in the next room working. So tell her it's um, for me. This this one because I I sent you the I brought the link to your attention after um, some of our listeners yes. brought it to my attention, and you know cause, yeah because I I couldn't be bothered logging in and all the rest of it. So you're you know you've you've got the login. You're all set, but just just blame it on me. Yeah, okay. So we'll see. We're, we're two minutes, 12 to go. We're still ahead. I almost feel like I want to watch this rather than talk about um, the yeah. podcast that we're making today. Why don't I do two things at the same time? I'll do I'd the I'd suggest intro. bumping yeah. it a bit because you've got to give yourself a buffer in case this other bitter comes in with a, like a, yeah, last, a last second, you oh. know. If they yeah, that's right. You've got to have your highest bid bit, don't you? Locked yeah, away. Your, your highest bid's got to be higher than their highest bid because, you know, if they come in with, with $5 over you with 10 seconds to go, you don't have time to correct Okay, it. I've done it. I've just, I've just added $11 to my, um, to my highest bid. Okay. I thought that maybe they might go 10 above me and this will be one above them. Yeah. Oh, God, this is fraught. This is fraught business. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this to myself? This is like the night that you've talked about before when we were in that room in Mile End during the Oval <laughs> Test in 2015 and I was betting on Mark Wall's trousers. Um, official one-day international number six on them, the whole bit. If it's any consolation, I'm sure, I'm sure Mark Wall bet on his trousers at some point in his gambling <laughs> career. <laughs> Uh, what have we got on the show this week? We are well. It's going to be a, a big fair break show, actually. So uh, we thought that, given that I'm here with these stories, these incredible stories everywhere you look, I'm not sure, Jeff, if you've had a chance to tap into the television coverage. But what we're doing is we're using, I guess, our commentary to as a platform for the tales of these players. And you know, 50 of the 90 players here are from Associate Nations, and of that, probably half of them are cricketers who could never have expected anything like this to happen to them. So often they come with with these with these backstories that are to die for and uh, yeah I've got three cricketers lined up I'll say this much that Roberto Moretti will definitely be on the final word this week mm-hmm. Marika Hill from Hong Kong is definitely going to be uh, with us uh, Roberta is going to bring uh, Laura, Laura Cardoso with her who took the four wickets in and over uh, last year in that America's qualifying game 17 seconds to go I am in the lead I am the highest bidder 10 okay. Count it 9 down. I'm going to snake you 7 Oh, God, I've been done. You've been done. You got snake. I must have been done. I've been done handily. Oh. I've been done by 70 bucks. Oh. So I've been done so by you so know, someone. you were going in increments um, of five, and then they've decided yeah. to come in with a big 70 over at the end. I think I'm okay with that. These yeah. come up fairly often. Like I, I once offered a, a bloke at a pub 300 bucks for his Australia A shirt uh, at the, um, where were we? It was at the, uh, oh, all those nights I spent there, Jeff, uh, the corner of Russell and Little Burke, the Exford. Mm. I was at the Exford. Oh, God. And uh, saw a chap wearing one and he refused to. I said, I'll, I'll give you my shirt and 300 bucks if I can have your shirt. And he, he goes, nah, it means too much to me. And I'm like, respect. Yep. If you understand what an Australia eight, original 94, 95 yeah. top means and you don't want to sell it to me for 300 bucks, then you're a better man than I. If, if you're drinking in a pub that has an authentic Buck Hunter machine downstairs and a bottle shop <laughs> with a 7am licence that then reopens at 10am, <laughs> you, you know what you're doing with the shirt that you're wearing. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what do you call it? The the karaoke jukebox type thing they've mm-hmm. got going on there that we've given a thrashing many times when, when Raz used to shut. Oh, the glory days of Raz up there on the second floor. Anyway, so we'll be doing some interviews later. They'll come up. Uh, we, uh, I should say, by the way, that I think there's some, like, people don't quite understand what mm-hmm. fair break is, I reckon. There's a bit of... And and to be honest, I, I don't know, necessarily know whether I did six weeks ago, but having built up to it and been here now, like this is a, 
yeah, the idea of fair break, the fair break movements, this is Sean Martin who originally started it. It was the Women's International Cricket League when I first met him in 2015. Mm-hmm. It never quite got off the ground because naturally Cricket Australia, the ECB, the BCCI even, were reluctant to let a competition get off the ground with their players involved that wasn't going to benefit them directly. So thus the WBBL comes in shortly thereafter, probably a response in some part at least to the WICL, which was Lisa Stalaker and, and Sean Martin who were promoting it at the time when I first met Sean. That was what it was going to be called and the rest is kind of history, isn't it? The KSL starts the year after that and the other domestic comps that have bobbed up and have been improved and domestic contracts and that, that rising tide that we've seen in women's cricket. That's a great thing. Where this fits in, it's... You know, it's not about offer. Yeah, you know, the fair break idea is yes, fair break for women, but also fair break for associate cricketers, associate women cricketers who, in much the same way that you hear stories of, of cricketers from yesteryear having to work two jobs and sort of, you know, study in the middle of the night. This is this lot. They are trying to balance out their desperation to be professional or international cricketers, professional is the wrong word, international cricketers with endless other commitments uh, just to keep all the balls in the air or or spitting plates day to day. Mm. And they're giving it their all. And the gap isn't as big as you might think. When you see a full member bowler against an associate batter, there is sometimes a gap. But associate bowlers pace off at full member batters or the spinners. They've done quite well, including, I mentioned last week, Winifred Durisingham. She picked up three for 24 to win a game and win player of the match bowling like slingy slow medium. And in the space of three balls, picked up Mignon Dupria and Georgia Redmayne to mm-hmm. win the game of cricket. I mean, these are great <laughs> stories. It'll be it'll be the high watermark of their careers in all probability. And there is an opportunity for this tournament to be played like every single year and to help bridge the gap and help provide a platform and a, and, a sh- and, a, and a shot window, I guess, and also give these associate players a sense of what's required to take the next step. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here. And, it, I mean, without overplaying it, it's thoroughly inspirational. This is often something we see with the emerging teams that we've noted before is that bowling and fielding come together sooner, generally. You know, you have you have teams that compete in that way, like we've seen Thailand do, in terms of being sharp in the field first, even if you your bowling and your batting aren't as good and then the bowling is more likely to come on sooner you know it's easier to defend as a bowling team than it is to develop the skill and the confidence and the swagger to go out and dominate as a batting team you know that tends to be the last piece of the puzzle so that sort of tallies with what you're talking about there unless you're bowling to the Mm. very 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 tiniest sliver of incredible hitters there's no such thing as bowling too slow yeah, it's been great so far. We had a, a thrilling run chase last night and um, a couple of, uh, well, I say a thrilling run chase, a, an emphatic run chase, but, you know, DeAndre Dotton, pong going balls everywhere is good cricket. It's great telly, right? Um, Heather Knight, likewise, and and we saw um, you know, Shizuka Miyagi uh, win player of the match from Japan a couple of days ago, taking four for 16. She is 40 years old and took up cricket 20 years ago. She's the heart and soul of Japanese cricket. She's wow. played around the world. She was a baseballer first. She's never played on telly. I mean, she's never had the chance to share a dressing room with the players she's playing with and against this week. Mm. Oldest player in the tournament. I mean, you know, you could probably write a book about her yeah. life in cricket. And because of fair break, we now talk about her story and, and others that, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to celebrate in the near future. Shizuka the bazooka. Blowing them up. <laughs> so I'm glad you've been having fun. That's the main thing. And when you jammed this into your already always overloaded schedule, I thought, hmm, <laughs> if you're having a good time, that's it. You've still been following all of the county cricket action very closely, though, I'm uh, led to believe. Well, hard not to when Ben Stokes is twatting 34 off and over, so, as he did mm-hmm. a couple of days ago at New Road and lit up the internet. I, I, and we'll go into that 
um, in our county wrap in a bit, but uh, I love that Andrew Sampson was um, filling our energy from Storytime a few weeks ago, Ted Allison style. So Ted Allison, uh, as you would know if you've listened to Storytime, uh, he sustained hitting in a game at Hove in, in 1911 where he went from 50 to 150 in 33 deliveries, the quickest ever, never been beaten. Stokes is now in second spot on 36 balls, so um, it gives you some sense of how extraordinary Allison's performance was. And Jeff, you've sent me that book. I have that at home ready to read by John Arlett. Uh, but also that you know Stokes having moved himself to number six, he, he made that declaration to the media the day before the game that he was going to bat six for England. I think that's significant that he's you know realised that batting anywhere from three to five isn't working and that he needs to trust that the top five can do what the top five need to do and he'll come in and be the swingman and be the traditional all-rounder in the traditional all-rounder position and he also batted there for Durham the easy thing to do would be oh well I'm going to bat three for Durham because I'm the best player I'm returning to the team but he went into his test spot and what followed was just completely bonkers so yeah we'll go into that in a bit more depth shortly as we enter into our county chat but to start our conversation today in some more depth Jeff we're going to go to a place that we considered going a fortnight ago and then we didn't quite get there and we wanted to give it the space it deserves and that's the debate around Joe Clark at the moment and the Likelihood that he will be selected for England soon, which will bring to a head a lot of theoretical discussions that have been playing out, mm. uh, mostly online, a little bit in the in the mainstream media as well. In I suppose the last twelve to eighteen months, when he's been not commanding selection on the basis of his performances necessarily, but a player excluding everything else, a player who has had a fabulous record in short form cricket and was Player of the Year, I think, for the Melbourne Stars this year. I didn't follow the BBL, but I know he did especially well there, which has put him back in the in the shop window again. And yeah, Jeff, it's obviously not a, an easy topic, an easy discussion, but our hope here is that we'll be able to move it to a slightly better place. So I'm not sure. That might be too ambitious. Well, look, it's something we've been chewing over for the last couple of weeks, trying to actually consider this subject adequately because it is complicated. Uh, the story involves sexual assault, so that if that's something you're going to find distressing, that's um, the kind of area we'll be in for the next few minutes, not in detail, but that's the background of this story. And so it seemed very apparent, especially over the last couple of weeks, that the people running the game, running the men's team in England, are laying the groundwork to pick Joe Clark and they know that it'll be unpopular to some extent they know it'll inflame disagreement and so it seems it seems like they're trying to draw a bit of that so that it's less intense when they do end up picking him if you don't know about the Joe Clark case this is basically it that five years ago 2017 when he's a young player at Worcestershire he's got a friend and a teammate there called Alex Hepburn Joe Clark brings a woman home on a night out and then he's drunk and passes out in another room Alex Hepburn rapes the woman he's later convicted of it in court and sent to prison which is a minor miracle considering how many people at how few the cases are where people actually get convicted when they go to court one of the things that comes out in the court case is that part of the motivation for Alex Hepburn doing this is that he's got this competition going with Joe Clark and another cricketer that they're friends with where they're all texting each other about it in this group chat about who can sleep with the most women by a certain point in time so this is literally just treating somebody like a number, right? It's pretty rank sort of stuff. And so Joe Clark, by dint of his involvement, gets sidelined by the ECB for the next couple of years. He's he's on the development pathway as a young player, but they don't really want too much to do with him. But now they do want something to do with him because they feel like enough time has gone past that it will be okay at this point. So that's the territory that we're in. And I think it's important to note when 
talking about subjects like this that we're not coming at this from a position of superiority. We're adult men. I can look back over my life and find plenty of things that I regret in terms of ways I've treated some of the women in my life. I'm sure that most men out there would have similar things in their lives, whether they admit it or not. You know, there tend to be mm. a couple of ways of dealing with it, either men don't care about these things or they're most often they're sort of in denial about it justifying things that they've done or they're trying to come to terms with the things that they've done and they're trying to be better one of those three things is usually the case and if you are someone who is trying to be better uh, who's trying to improve yourself it is true that the vast majority of us don't have to do it in a spotlight. We get to do it privately. We get to mm. do this thing without the scrutiny of anyone beyond the, the people within our sort of limited inner circle who know what's going on in our own lives. So it is true that it's difficult for this guy to be doing it in a spotlight. I, I don't think that's a reason to feel sorry for him about it. Though. I don't think it's like, oh, you're unlucky because you're doing it in a spotlight. You're in a spotlight because you fucked up. And if you are someone who wants to be a member of a representative national sporting team, then you are putting yourself in the spotlight. It's not just volunteering. It's not just like being a celebrity and saying that it, it's a position that brings attention. You're trying to be a representative player who represents a country and the people of that country. And if you're a representative of other people in any capacity, they are going to be looking at you. So I guess that's my roundabout way of saying that we're not talking about this in terms of being a moral authority, making a judgment from on high, but it is still something that is relevant to talk about and needs people to talk about it because of the, the spotlight and the national representation involved. Yeah, if only people with an unblemished record were to talk about this, well, there wouldn't be many people speaking. So with the caveat that you acknowledged before about neither of us being perfect human beings, uh, we can't just shoulder arms because of that. And yeah, back to that first point about why this is a topic at the moment. They are laying the groundwork for Joe Clark to be picked soon. He was excommunicated for a time. He was excluded from Lions squads. He hasn't played for England in any form. And by that, I mean, he was on the pathway big time. You know, go back to 2015, 2016, he's a prodigy. You know, it was looking as though he'd be the long-term guy batting in the middle order for England from a very young age. He was the, the player they were thinking would be alongside Joe Root at three or four or five from, you know, as young as 21 or 22. So the fact that he hasn't been part of it the last few years reflects that he hasn't had a, a great time of it with the bat, but also that he, that he hasn't been really available for selection. And there is that, as you point out, Jeff, that subtle change of language that he clearly is now. He received a phone call before the West Indies tour telling him that he was on standby. And by deduction, you can assume that he'll be pushing for selection this year and he started pretty well. So you think that's this is going to come. So ahead of that, I think it's worthwhile talking about it because I think that the view that is held by a lot of people is that he's done his time as opposed to he was going to receive mm -hmm. effectively a life ban if they're a better team. I don't think that people are coming at this from the perspective that, oh, gee, it'd be convenient if we didn't pick him. I think they're coming at it from a perspective of he's been away for a long stretch of time and mm -hmm. not been available for a long stretch of time. And now uh, they're signalling that he is available because he's gone to Australia and had an excellent big bash. And, you know, he's at that part of his 20s when players tend to take the next step. And the signs from a cricketing perspective are probably good in that sense. So... 
Yeah, I, I, I've been keen to divorce the conversation from form because I think that's a bit of a cop-out that um, people have said, oh, well, he shouldn't be playing anyway. He's shit or whatever. I mean, look mm. at his average. Look at his batting average. Of course, you shouldn't be playing test cricket. Like, I don't really care what his batting average is. The conversation's more important than simply what his, what his form lines are. It's more sensible to come at this from, like, let's pretend he averages 90. Like, you know, mm. let, let's, let's disregard how he's gone and, and deal with the, the other parts of it rather than focusing too much on the cricket because then you can go around around in circles and you can make the case on cricket grounds or, you know, it, it's a subjective art, right? The way you framed it there is exactly the way it has been framed, this idea of, of he's done his time, you know, he's he had yeah, some punishment yeah. and, and enough time has gone past and it was five years ago. And that was the sort of gist of George DeBell's piece the other week that excited some comment. Uh, he was trying to be understanding, I think, uh, of the player in this position. I also think he got that completely wrong. And and I think that's a, a massive cop out, that sort of done your time thing. And there are reasons for this. This isn't this isn't that if you do something wrong once you're gone forever and you should never be allowed to be in a civilized society again. But that clearly hasn't happened. The punishment the actual punishment that he got was pretty light. He missed a couple of county games. He didn't end up on some Lions tours. Well, so what, really? So the argument is, okay, this stuff happened five years ago, now we move on, blah, blah, blah. He was associated with this crime, but he didn't commit a crime and so on, and so therefore you, you shouldn't be judging him by association with this other person. This doesn't add up, I think. So there, there are a couple of things to add here. It's not just about this WhatsApp group that he's in and what they were texting and whatever it was and the fact that he was young and a dickhead at the time. The trial was two years later. At the trial, he stated that Alex Hepburn was still his best friend. He considered him his best friend uh, and that, you know, despite what had happened, this is after he's had two years to think about it. Another thing that I'd noticed that hasn't been brought up at all in any of the coverage but was noticed in was, was noted in the trial coverage at the time was that Joe Clark mentioned that the woman who was attacked had tried to contact him a few months later to speak to him and he had told her that he didn't want to speak to her he refused to speak to her because she wasn't dropping the charges against his friend and that she was making this problem continue as the way that he'd framed it basically she wouldn't make the problem go away so it was her responsibility to make life easier for him and his friend who'd committed this crime and that that, that she should drop the charges and make the case disappear so this is the outlook of the guy at the time. And yeah, you can say, okay, that's 2019. Well, that's all of three years ago. Maybe he's a completely changed man now. I don't think he is. And and this was kind of the end of George's piece was maybe he's reflected about these things in private. Maybe he's become a, a better and different person. We've got no idea if that's the case or not. You can't assume that that is the case. And I think this comes down to... So it's what, what I was talking about in terms of trying to improve yourself in private versus in public. Most of us get the relative luxury of trying to do that in private. If your wrongdoing is made public, your only recourse, the only way you can change people's perception of you is to do right in public. You've got to match one arena with the other if you want people to change their opinion of you. And if you want to be a representative as in playing for a national team, then you have to prove to people that you've changed. You can't yeah. you can't wait for them to assume that you have changed just because time has passed. And look, there are, there are any number of things that, that this guy could have done. And I appreciate he was very young and naive and wouldn't know how to fix this situation when it happened. He could have been advised by people at his cricket club. This clearly didn't happen and hasn't happened at either of the clubs he's been at in terms of what can you do to try to... You can't make amends for the actual thing that's happened, but what can you do to try to add goodness to the world in this area? And you could list off 
hundreds of different variations of, you know, like I know he had to do some kind of enforced ECB training or whatever it is, but I'm sure that was as useless as most of it is. It's more about was he prepared to do anything off his own bat? Like go and talk to a local group who, like a women's crisis centre who help women who are at the receiving end of domestic violence. Ask if there are ways that you can learn about the women's side of that experience, about how it feels to be on that side of the equation. Volunteer with that group and help them out. Use your profile as a local sportsman. It doesn't have to be a big star power thing, but you're a county player in a local county. Use that profile to be an advocate for them, to help them raise money. Uh, you, you get a big payday in the hundred tell journalists you're going to donate 10 grand to to this charity or that charity to help them do the work they do bring it up you know these are just ideas that i'm throwing off here and i'm sure there are plenty of other ways that that this could have been approached but bring it up with journalists bring it up in at media opportunities talk about what happened and about things that you're trying to do to try to make up for that or balance that out what i've noticed with all of the you know the joe clark's done a few interviews and in all of them, he's trying to downplay this. He, he, he's reluctant to talk about it. He's, he says things like, oh, I've, I'm just moving on and looking towards the future. If he were instead the one bringing it up and saying, hey, I had this fucked up thing that I did, you know, I, I had this, this bad time in my life and here's what I'm doing to try to improve myself as a person, then you might be able to believe that. Even something as basic as use your social media profiles to pump up women's cricket, to pump up the, the 100 team that's the opposite part of the franchise that you're playing for to pump up the England women's team whatever it might be you know Joe Clark's got a locked Twitter account he's got an Instagram that's just full of pictures of himself there's nothing that he's doing publicly nothing whatsoever aside from an ECB text statement apology in in 2019 or whatever it was when he was first sanctioned and a couple of pretty half-assed comments in interviews where he says vague things like I regret what happened and I wish I could change it but he won't actually talk about what it is He's made no obvious demonstration that that he wants to do anything about it. He hasn't engaged with trying to do anything better. And so I just think that it's fucking bullshit to sit there and say, oh, I think everybody should give me the chance. I think everybody should assume that I'm now a better person when you've done literally zero to demonstrate that you're a better person. Your failings happen publicly, then your response needs to happen publicly. Yeah, I think that's pretty well summed up. I'd add that... I think you can probably draw a line through the, the back and forth that happened around the court case at the time because he would have been desperate, right? You're doing at that particular juncture. So I think it's, it's what you're saying there. It's what's he doing now? And mm. that's where I think he's been dreadfully advised by those around him. The I'm just putting it beyond me, I want to move forward line. Effectively, the politician's defence, right? Mm-hmm. He did the perfunctory apology, as you do, Technically speaking, he has apologised, right? But the question is, has the apology been forthright enough? And the suggestions you made there are fine. If he had people around him making others, they would have been fine too, I'm sure. But the idea of just sort of almost becoming a small target and thinking Mm. that over time it would be okay was naive because eventually there was going to be this reckoning and it was going to happen when he got picked for England. Now, why is it different playing for England compared to when he's picked at the top price bracket for the 100 or... I have no idea how much money he made in the Big Bash, but presumably quite a lot. It's because 
a national team as a representative team of something more. Uh, I think that there's a broad acceptance mm-hmm. of that. And representing uh, how much we, half the people in that country who are women, everybody in that country who's who play been, cricket, who, who's been yeah, subject well, to well, sexual well, assault in their lives, men and women. Exactly, exactly. And even those, and even those inside the game. I mean, I've, I've detected this strongly. There's a lot of people inside our sport, women inside our sport, mm-hmm. who are saying this makes them feel unsafe as being members of the cricket community. Now, I think we need to listen to those people and say, well, more important than us, Joe Clark needs to listen to these to these people. And this should be the start of it. When, yes, that piece went viral a couple of weeks ago, I'm sure he would have detected that. He wouldn't be immune or naive to the ferocity of that response. He should be saying right now, right, okay, my approach to this until this point has been unsatisfactory and it will not pass muster if I am picked. I need to get out on the front foot and do a number of things that you're talking about there. He should be speaking about this. I'm not saying he'll give the most eloquent interviews. I'm not saying that he needs to self-flagellate, as it were, and put himself up for a hundred interviews, but no. he could do worse than putting himself up for one. You know, one all out there till they drop every single tough question and just, like I kind of said before, eat the shit sandwich. You know, but do the right thing. I think um, it's also... And, 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 and that's not just... And I should just say, just I don't want people... I, I, it's... it's delicate territory. I don't want to be taken out of context here. I'm not saying purely for PR purposes, but that has to be part of the rehabilitation process for everybody. He'll be doing a service to many people inside the game by going out there and acknowledging how fucked the whole thing was from from start to end and how a number of things that he's done since then was the wrong way of handling it and that he's learnt and that he's read and that he's seen and he's understood and listened. And now he knows that the next thing he needs to do is all of this uh, to make it clear to the world that he is a better person. And if it doesn't pass muster and it doesn't look sincere, people have got a pretty good bullshit radar these days. Mm. I mean, because of social media, we, we see a lot more of people more broadly. Like, we just sort of know a lot more about people than we did before when it was filtered through the mainstream media. If he doesn't look legit in what he's doing, people won't cop it. So it has to be authentic. It can't be some sticky tape job to yep. get himself to the next selection table meeting. And I... Look, I don't think it's too late, but it's got to happen now. Because if he waits until that day when his name's on the team sheet for England, mm-hmm. it'll probably be too late and he'll never get the opportunity to win the faith at any stage of anyone who I've referred to before. But it's also that he's wasted the last three years where he could have been actually trying to do something. When you acknowledge that you've done things wrong, your response to it can be, what can I do that is good? What can I do that brings some good yeah. into the world? Yeah. Right? And and it doesn't have to just be about PR. It's about actually fronting up to the fact that you've failed as a person in this way. And I don't think he has because he's done interviews talking about how hard it was for him when all of this happened because everybody was looking at him and saying bad things about him and it made him feel bad and it was yeah. hard to concentrate on playing cricket. I mean, who gives a fuck how hard it was for you? I, sorry, that's not the thing that's at issue here. It seems pretty likely that he still sees this as an unfair thing that happened to him rather than an unfair thing that happened to someone else that he helped create, you know, that he was that he was a part of, of, of bringing into being. And, and that's the thing that gives me the shits when people use those phrases like he's done his time. The, the people who don't get to do their time are the people who are the victims of these things. They have to live with it forever. They don't get to say, oh, well, it's been three years now, so it, it would be a shame to keep going on about it. You know, when you've experienced yeah, trauma, yeah. you may be able to work through it and get on with your life, but you've got to do all the work. It's on you. You know, you are forced to do that work for as long as it takes, and it may be years and maybe decades and it may be never. I think it's important where you were saying things about 
about the sincerity of it. It's really easy to dismiss this sort of thing. You know, if he were actually doing things, actually trying to help in practical ways to be part of the counterbalance against sexual violence. I'm sure there would be a lot of people who'd be cynical about it um, and who would say that he's just doing it for virtue signaling and whatever else. And that's actually fine. Like, this is something I was thinking about over the last week or so. Even that phrase, virtue signaling, that's supposed to mean a bad thing. Signaling virtue is a good thing because it encourages other people to act in a virtuous way. It amplifies mm. a, a precedent. Like, every, every time you see someone doing something good or talking about doing something good, it's more likely that other people are going to follow along and, and do the same sort of thing. In order to do good, you have to actually do things, right? And speech is an action, right? So saying things and doing things are both valuable in, in different ways. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you do. And we've talked about this in yeah. terms of racism in the past, and I'm sure we've borrowed this formulation from somewhere, I'm not sure where, but you and I kind of came to this point of saying, well, racism is not an idea, it, it's an action. It lives in action. It lives in the things you do and say. You can be as racist as you want inside your head, but if you never do anything racist or say anything racist, you're not adding to the racism in the world. If you're somebody who doesn't necessarily 100% believe in the good things that you're doing, but you're doing them and you're saying them, you're still having a much more positive effect than somebody who has all the right thoughts and ideas, but does nothing and says nothing about them. And that's why I particularly reacted to that sort of line that George wrote about how maybe in private, Joe Clark is now a much better improved person. I was like, I don't give a fuck what he's like in private. This thing happened publicly his actions happen publicly and they tell all of the women who follow cricket, who play cricket, who are involved in cricket and anyone who's been subject to sexual violence, uh, who's, uh, who follows cricket or anybody who's from England and is represented by them. When you pick him, it says that this one guy's ambition is more important than the safety or the well-being of any of these other people. That's what it says. Unless he's actually earned the chance to be seen differently by behaving differently, then he shouldn't be playing for England. Yeah, I think there is a correlation here to the conversation we were having last year with, with Vish where he said the end game is to have people committing fewer racist acts. Mm. So fewer racist comments and, and so on. Like That's the objective here. It's to try and help advance the conversation in that way. With this, it's like, well, again, kind of drawing down on what George wrote at the end there about what he hoped Joe Clark might be able to achieve. What he should be able to do is look back at and reflect on what's happened in his life and what's happened over the last five years, acknowledge how dreadful it has been for the victim at the end of this, and use that to become evangelical about other young men never committing sexual assault. He should be the biggest champion for the way that men treat women at the other side of this. And you're right, it's got to be words, it's got to be acts, but he could yet still a force for good. The problem is he said nothing of the sort. He's curled up in a ball. From a public perspective, he's waited for the storm to blow over and it's just not going to blow over. He is, as you say, probably seen himself as being caught up in this tawdry scandal and feeling as though that drama has cost him something mm -hmm. rather than his involvement in something that had far worse repercussions than that. Yep. Being redeemed is comes from action. In a private sense, you can improve and redeem yourself by introspection and thought. In a public sense, if it's about how other people see you, then the only thing you can do is show them something better. Uh, and that's what hasn't happened in this case. And that is not what the vast majority of us have to deal with, with our own self-improvement. And I fully acknowledge that. But if your public difficulty comes from your own wrongdoing, then I don't think 
anyone should feel sorry for you for that either. And I just hope that they're listening, like the decision makers in ECB Towers and beyond are listening to this conversation, not necessarily us, but actually paying attention to what women are saying, what survivors are saying, how this has made them feel, how much trauma, how much grief this has brought back to the surface, the very fact that it's in the news again. And they pay attention and they just take a beat. If this was an exercise in laying the groundwork for Clark to return this summer, listen, understand what's going on right now in large segments of our game and respect it and pause. Not excommunicate forever, not issue life bans, although I acknowledge that some people do never want to see Joe Clark represent England, and that's a position I respect. But in the very, very short term, listen, and don't treat this as, a, as another problem they can just write out. Don't view this as like, okay, we're going to have to just deal with the Joe Clark thing for a bit longer and it'll be okay soon. Instead, as, as you've said, Jeff, get out there and, and begin the process of proving to the entire cricketing community that this is a, a player that is worth having the redemption arc for and, and let him prove that to everybody in his deeds and in his words, not just because a certain amount of time's elapsed. Yeah, time passing doesn't fix anything. Um, taking action is the only thing that, that can heal things. So I, I hope we've talked about that in a way that has some empathy and that is not bombast and in a way that makes sense to at least some of the people listening. Um, I guess you can let us know it's um it's complicated terrain but we should um, we should move on to the next bits of the show that uh, that will seem very trivial in comparison yeah yeah well it will just running through what happened in county cricket this week right it's, it's difficult to shift gears in this way but shift gears we will uh, shall we start with division one jeff you know it feels Why like not? so uh, so small fry but anyway we will uh, all eight teams played this week from the excellent to the grim those games uh the Grim Games kind of fueled Kevin Peterson and his cohort on social media, kind of desperate for retweets and all the rest of it, you know, talking about franchising red ball cricket. I get the sense that Peterson may not know what franchising is. Like, what's mm-hmm. he actually saying? Like, what's he actually wanting? Like, is there examples of, like, red ball county domestic cricket being franchised? Mm-hmm. Like, what does it actually mean? Mm-hmm. What does he really mean is that he want to see eight top-flight first-class counties and the ten you know, go back to being minor counties. Is that what he's really saying? If he is, then say it. This F word franchise seems a bit out of mm. place here. But anyway, at, at its best and for the most part, the county season's ticking along beautifully. We had a game between Hampshire and Gloucester. It was kind of one of those first innings, fourth innings games where um, there were two small innings between times, but Hampshire won by 80-odd runs, defending 360. Of interest here, Jeff, uh, Muhammad Amir. This is a bizarre story. He's, He's in England bad, living baby. here at the moment, and the Seam Shah is out for a stretch of time, which is sad, but they've said, well, hang on, uh, let's go to another Pakistani Seamer. Uh, and he made his return a couple of weeks ago. It's bloody exciting. I mean, he's just turned 30. He's got time for at least a couple more comebacks as a test player for Pakistan <laughs> if he wants it. At least three more retirements. But yeah, so six wickets in the game. He got on a hat-trick at one stage, I think. So Muhammad Amir back playing red ball cricket. That's pretty cool. Uh, Marcus Harris missed out both times for Gloucestershire from an Australian perspective. Felix Organ. I'm not sure if you've happened upon Felix Organ uh, as yet, Jeff, but he's got just about the best name in, in domestic cricket in England. He uh, made a ton in the first innings and a duck in the second, so he can add his name to that, that list of players. It's not, not a particularly long list of players who've, who've done that in professional cricket. James Vince got 79. He, he keeps getting runs. He's, I think he's passed 50 about half a dozen times already in this season. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in the extended squad, although I doubt they'll pick him in, in the first 11. Surrey had another innings win at home, this time over Northampton. Timely century for Rory Burns, his first of the season. I, 
I don't think Burns is going to end up uh, playing test cricket this summer. I'd be surprised if Rory Burns ended up playing test cricket this summer. Uh, but given they, they they seemingly have moved on from him, but still 100 at the right time of the year. Runs for Sam Curran as well, who's not able to bowl at the moment. He made a rapid 79. Jeff, you might have noticed that Colin de Grandholm signed the contract with Surrey for a short-term deal at the moment after Kemo Roach went down. On the back of his shirt, though, he's just got his initials, CDG. You've got to be a pretty good cricketer to get away with wearing just your initials on the back of the shirt. It reminded me in fair break this week where Deandra Dotton's been getting around with World Boss on her shirt instead of Dotton. So they must afford certain privileges to very good cricketers. <laughs> um, maybe it's because it's also the, um, the, the airport code for Charles de Gaulle airport in, yes. in Paris, so maybe it's just where his bags came from. They got stamped. <laughs> uh, Dan Worrell took five wickets for the match. Um, he is no longer a South Australian cricketer. Uh, huh. He's formally trying to qualify for England. He's only 30 as well, so he'll have three years ahead of him to mm. get to that mark. He'll be 33 by that stage, but in these conditions, he's a, he's a very good cricketer. So, sorry, eight points ahead on top from Hampshire. Uh, they were the two winners this week. There was a grim draw at Old Trafford between Lanks and, and Warwickshire, but uh, Dom Sibley, bless him, made, made 142 not out. He carried his bat in the first innings, and oh, yeah. uh, I mentioned before that, uh, that that Rory Burns made a ton and you know uh, keeps his name it. broadly in, no. in that conversation. I Go suppose away. Dom Sibley does too. No. Uh, another discarded opener, Keaton Jennings made a, a century in reply for Lancashire. Uh, no Jimmy this week for Lanks. Uh, Parkinson was back and took three for in both innings. So, yeah, I, I expect that Matt Parkinson will be in that test squad when they announce it in a couple of weeks. And everything crossed, they see fit to play him at some point this summer. They all just want Ellis to cook back, don't they? Twin tons <laughs> for Essex. I've, I've been seeing the bring him back. You know, the, there's cookmentum out there, uh, the comeback they want. Yeah. You know, a, an army a comeback for Pakistan and a cook comeback for England. Well, yeah, well, the, the cook. So, this is a, a shithouse game Essex 400 to Yorkshire 465, and some second innings runs for, for Essex before they. Shook hands and called the whole thing off. But, yeah, Cook made his 71st and 72nd first-class 100. And, yeah, at the, in the margins, there'll be people asking him to come back and play test cricket. And, look, maybe Rob Key might pick up the phone and ask if he's interested. There is no way in the world Cook will accept that. He, mm-hmm. I mean, how many sports people get to sign off the way he did in 2018? He'd be a madman to return four years later um, to an England style. team that's a... a an absolute rat, an absolute rabble. Yeah, exactly. Plugger style. Paul Salmon when he came back for a couple of games as well. No, they won't be doing that. But yeah, I, what I am interested in is if Cook gets to say 77 by the end of the season, if he gets on a real roll, remember it's 14 game seasons, he'll play every game for Essex. I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago, he was close to signing for Tasmania in the Shield last year. Really? If he gets to 77, he goes, ooh, okay. If I go to Australia for a couple of years and play in the Shield and can make sort of you know, six or seven hundreds there. That might mean he only needs to play four more seasons in England. Mm. He's 36 years old. The hundred hundreds isn't off the table. I, I mean, everything needs to go right. I'm not disputing that. But from 72 to 100, if he does get to play in Australia, that becomes a possibility. I don't think he'd get there just playing in England. Like, mm. to keep the motivation levels up this far beyond his international career. I, I can't see him you know, playing until he's 44 or something like that. But yep. if he went till he was 40 and decided to, to keep playing domestic cricket in Australia and he was able to snag himself a deal or even somewhere else, I mean, maybe he could go to South Africa. Mm-hmm. If he really wants it, I think there's time if he's good enough. Yeah. If he played season in, season out, you know, and made eight, 
eight hundreds a year across two domestic seasons, that'd be doable, wouldn't it? And that pretty much gets you there. Well, Shield cricket, I think it's less likely he would dominate. Like he might make two or three a season, right? Sure. Just to keep it ticking over during the winter. It's for Essex where he's I mean, he's made what four this year already. Let's say he gets to That's what I'm saying. So eight or nine for so the season. Eight, eight in yeah. the twelve months, you know, maybe three are in the Shield right. or two yeah, 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 and yeah. five are in the, the Champo or whatever, and then that pretty much gets you there. At the other end of his career is Harry Brook, who made 123 uh, for Yorkshire. He's made 300s this season. David Milan, 87 further runs. Again, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mentioned Vince might be in the extended squad. Milan was in that test team that played in Australia through the winter. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Division 2, three games, um, but they were probably more interesting than the top flight. At Hove, a cracking match between Sussex and Middlesex. So Sussex make 392, Middlesex make 358 to set it up. Ollie Robinson back for his first bowl this season, took 5 for 66, all ticking over well. Sussex in the second innings put the foot down. They make 365 for four declared in just 68 overs. Chiteshwa Pajara, Hello. 170 not out. In 197 balls, 22 fours, three sixes. Now, how about this? He's up to 717 runs at 143, having played just four matches. He's made four centuries, including two doubles. He's actually overtaken Shah Massoud. Derbyshire didn't play this week, but um, they've played four games apiece. Shah's on 7-13. Unfortunately, Sussex only have one more game before the end of May, so the probability of him reaching 1,000 is limited. Shah Massoud, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, he's got two more games, so a maximum of four innings. And then there's Sean Dixon, who's ahead of both of them, playing for Durham. He made twin tons for Durham this week. He's up to 729, and they've got two games left as well. David Bettingham from Durham got to a similar position to this last year and, and, and didn't stick the landing. But um, Sean Dixon, who is the most recent county player to hit a triple ton years ago for Kent, he's in there too. So Sean Masood and Sean Dixon both have two games to go in May and could reach 1,000 before the end of that month for the first time since 1988. So that's pretty exciting. As for Pajara, Jeff, they've got to pick him for this test match in July, don't they, against yeah. England. I mean, making runs here, they'd be mad not to pick him. He's got to go to India. <laughs> Jiteshwa Pajara has got to go. <laughs> Get him on the plane. Got to play for India. He's got to play for India, surely. I mean, he's, you know, he's there. He's, uh, he's, it's, it's Mark Hussey in 2005, you know. He's, he's got the measure of the conditions. He's, uh, he knows what the ball's doing. Yeah. He, he knows how to tonk around substandard <laughs> bowling in the second division. Um, it won't quite be Broad and Anderson, but, um, you know, it's it's better than nothing. It's better than coming in off nets in Mumbai. Yeah, Middlesex, pretty strong attack too. I mean, remember Shaheen Sharafridi is leading that, leading that attack. Mm-hmm. So, um, to put it in some perspective, I think Shaheen took three in the first innings and, and two in the second. Maybe it could be Pajara's farewell test. I mean, it might be that he lines it up and says, I'll retire. Because he's not going to get picked for India again, is he? Like, let's be honest. He's not getting picked... It's just not going to happen. They've mm. moved on from him. They're generation next. We understand that, sure. But maybe this could be the, the swan song against England to, I guess, complete the series win. They're up 2-1 going into the fifth, weird as it is. Well, look, Rohit Sharma is a canny fella and he's running the show now. So if he wants the Che, he'll get the Che. I think that's what it'll come down to. Back to that game. So they set Middlesex 370 in 77 overs and they mow it down in 74 with 19 balls to spare. Robson made 100. So that's a hell of a win, winning by seven wickets, chasing 370 in not even a full final day there at Hove. Sam Robson got 149 of those. As I put on Twitter last night, I think that is 
with hindsight, the biggest botching of England's Ashes tour was just not even taking Robson to Australia. I mean, he had a, a fabulous season last year. He hit 400s for Middlesex in a really tough campaign where they played naturally half their games at Lords, where it was a, a minefield last year, the toughest batting conditions in the country. And he still plays in Sydney every winter for Easts. He grew up playing against Stark and Hazelwood and Cummins. He still plays against them in grade cricket when they're available at the start of the year. He should have gone. That would have been a far more sensible decision rather than kind of ruining Hasiba Mead's life by letting him play. Um, <laughs> you know, having just returned to the test team, all of his, uh, all of his ups and downs. Why would you do I mean, it? He was, You're a sweet young I mean, boy. Why would you do it? Why would you send him? Whereas Robson, yeah, he's earned his second op- I, I mean, I don't expect they'll go for him when they name their test squad in a couple of weeks, but he's making a great case for it. Peter Hanscom, from an Australian perspective, made 79, the captain of Middlesex in that chase. And my boy, Martin Anderson, always a mention for Marty A, he made 44 not out uh, in 30 deliveries, the man who's eligible to play for Sweden, and hopefully he will at some stage before graduating to higher honours with England. That's that's how I'm, I'm forecasting his next few seasons. Middlesex, uh, top of the ladder in Division 2 after that. That's some effort after 2021 where they were down the very bottom of the third division. Or oh, sorry, they, they came second in Division 3, but the way they got there was a shambolic first 10 games of the year. I'm going to skip over the Glamorgan clinical victory over Leicestershire. I will note, though, that Marnus Labashain was out in, in the teens in both innings. He's had a pretty pretty shaky start to the year, Labashain, with the exception of that 80-odd he made two weeks ago. And let's go to New Road to finish, where all the action was and all the eyeballs were with, with Ben Stokes, the most extraordinary performance. I mean, Durham making 580 for six from 128 overs, a really good clip. I already touched on uh, Dixon making twin centuries, but then Stokes comes in at six, where he's got a bat for England, as we mentioned before, and then he makes 161 from 88 deliveries, eight fours, 17 sixes, the most ever in a county championship innings. Uh, We already mentioned that uh, Ted Allerton factoid before, but the live stream was absolutely ticking, especially when he hit poor Josh Baker for 34 off one over. Baker I was watching it. Is an 18. 18- oh, you you had it mm-hmm. tuned in when he when he did it. Well, he's 18 years old. The poor kid's played about five first class games, and he was probably 10 meters away from being a millionaire. You know, like in terms of the public speaking engagements he would have had for the rest of his life, sportsman's nights and all the rest of it. Had Stokes completed the six sixes, and he would have been what the third cricketer to do that in first class cricket would I be right to say that six sixes with Sobers with Nash and and Ravi Shastri doing it in domestic cricket in the early 80s but I don't think anyone else has done it uh, hit six sixes I mean I think there have been more than 36 scored in an over where there's been you know sevens and Mm -hmm. fives and god knows what no balls yeah Stokes sent Baker a, a message that night to say look I've been there, man. World Cup final 2016, Carlos Brathwaite. It's going to be okay. You're a good cricketer, which shows touch of class there from Stokes. And yeah, they had 100 overs to bowl at Worcestershire the second time around and, and didn't achieve it. Stokes went wicketless, but yes, he's in great nick heading into the international summer back from injury. And one last note here that Darren Stevens isn't playing for Kent right now. He's out of the first team, but he did play a game against the Sri Lankan Development 11 over the weekend, which had first class status. It had first class status. Let's just hang on. Let's just pause on that. A game between <laughs> who? A game between Kent's second 11? I think. I think it was a Kent 11 against us. Uh, I'm not sure if it was called the Kent second 11, but it okay. was a Kent. So not the Kent 11 Kent team, cricketers. But, well, but Kent didn't play this team. week. So, yeah, actually thinking of three, Kent didn't play this week. So okay. it probably was Kent. But Kent versus the, but a guy who's not the Sri Lanka in their, Development in their, 11. Who's, who they're not playing in county cricket was playing in this team. So they obviously weren't playing yes. everybody. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, he right. didn't play last week. He was dropped. But okay. he turned 46 last week, Steve-O, and he hit 168 not out. He's the oldest player to hit a 150 in first-class cricket since Bob Wyatt made 166 for Worcestershire against Surrey in 1948. He was aged 47 and 20 days. And sure enough, that's courtesy of Andrew Sampson. And that ends our county wrap. A big weekend in the Shires, Jeff. I am 100% happy for Steve-O. And a hundred percent furious that a fucking Kent second eleven is playing the Sri Lankan development squad and it has first class status. World Series cricket? No, 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 none of that. No, no, no. no. We're having a we're having a status debate over here right now, Jeff. You're quite. I, I should have mentioned this earlier with Fairbreak. So, because Fairbreak is sanctioned by Hong Kong cricket, it's a Hong Kong cricket tournament just being mm-hmm. played in Dubai because of COVID reasons. There's still a, a 14-day quarantine period oh. in Hong Kong, would you believe? Because they're not a full member nation, their T20 competitions don't get status as T20s. So, these are being declared by Cricket Archive and Crick Info as miscellaneous T20s. They're not being oh. given that sort of T20. But they've put an application in to have that overturned because it's preposterous with the, the talent on the field here this week that they don't have... Yeah, you know they don't have status as formal T20s, and the ICC have been, you know, I guess they've been flexible around this before, letting uh, all T20s be given international status. So hopefully they they see right to do the right thing by Hong Kong cricket here. But mm. yeah, you, I'm sh- I'm sure you'd appreciate that I've been having uh, status conversations around the, around the corridors this week in Dubai. Yeah, well, if the you know Asia Eleven and Africa Eleven games in 2007 get list A, then then surely these yes. can get domestic T20 status. Come on. Come on. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think I think that's right. Uh, Jeff, before we uh, head to our interviews, a slightly longer segment one than I thought it would be, we should find time for a very quick round of... Mm, no Pledge. No Pledge. It's the game that we play with all the nice people on our patron page. They fund the show, and they do that by sending us contributions that are not round numbers, but they're specific numbers because they relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what the relationship is. Our new No Pledge for this week is... Carolyn S. And the number is $2.32. Carolyn's been very busy on the chat page, getting in there, talking with everybody, having a great old time, and hasn't even had this number come up yet. But here it is. Yeah, I think I think I know what Caroline's number is because she told me at the pub the other week. But, um, Jeff, uh, let it rip. Okay. Well, I was not told at the pub the other week, but <laughs> I did have the... Well, even before I read the clue, I thought 232 is Amelia Kerr for New Zealand in a one-day international, surely. And then the clue said simply women's cricket. So I was like, well, it even more has to be Amelia Kerr, right, making the highest score in women's one-day international history uh, when she hit 232 against Ireland in Dublin, maybe, in 2018. It was one of those innings where you go, well, it's a bit of an anomaly. It's a it's a traditionally lower-order player, up the order against a, a relatively weaker side. But it's a classy, classy knock. It's 232 with only a couple of sixes, 31 fours, I think, from memory. So it was all mm. along the ground, all controlled, all, all, all those kind of things. It did seem like an anomaly until earlier this year when Amelia Kerr suddenly got popped up to number three in the New Zealand 50-over team and then had an incredible series against India and made bulk runs in, in every match across five games before the World Cup. Made some runs during the World Cup as well, so maybe she's following that trajectory of the um, the leg spinner who becomes good at batting. You may remember, if you've listened to the show before, there are a couple of those historically. <laughs> Ian Chappell was one. Sunay Luce was one. Cameron White 
was one. Uh, they're the only ones I can think of. I don't think there's anyone else. But um, uh, <laughs> I wonder if she's following that. That she, I think she's a better bowler than any of the above, but she's been bowling for so long that maybe she's bored with it and just wants to be good at batting now. Yeah, so, well, first things first, I think Amelia Kerr is going to be an absolute superstar at three for New Zealand. I just can't wait to watch her progress over the next few years. And they're going to need her, right? Like, she's mm. how old is she now? Twenty. Six. Two, possibly, if <laughs> no, that. feels like two. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think she's early 20s, right? So yeah. she's got loads of time ahead of her, and she'll yeah. probably need to captain this team because uh, Sophie Devine's the captain right now, but I can't see Sophie Devine being the captain at the next World Cup, for example, no. because she's coming towards the end of her international career. So, yeah, Amelia Kerr might be next cab off the rank to, to lead the New Zealand team, and I think she'll do a great job of it. I think she is 22. I reckon she was born in 2000, which should make it easy to keep track of how old she is as, as her career goes on. I'm pretty sure I remember yeah. I remember watching her watching the clips of her when she was 14 bowling in a domestic T20 final, and she took four for her and bowled some crazy wrong and I think that That's was right, around yeah. 2014 or 14 or 15. Yeah. So, yeah, she's about that. The other thing about that day, I remember the 2-3-2, was that I was in Paris with Amy Lofthouse and Vish. The second time we got down there for a bit of a getaway, the three of us went on a couple of holidays. Jeff, you joined us on, in 2017, didn't you? Mm. We uh, had a bit of time in Paris together. But the oh, year Chante. later, 2018, when Amelia Kerr was teeing off, we were sort of, I think we were just kind of shopping and it was popping up on our phones what was going on and we were trying to find a feed, you know, trying to find a... This is before streaming was a real thing and, you know, three cricket badges in the middle of Paris trying to get away from sport for a week, all huddled around a phone watching the Crick Info scores update to see whether Amelia Kerr could, you know, where she would eventually finish. And, yes, a nice memory from a, a lovely week away. Uh, we should do it again sometime and go to Paris now that we can travel again. Well, she finished right at the top. She went past Belinda Clark's 229. Uh, that record would have stood for 21 years, I think that would make it at that point. That was 97 when Belinda Clark made that. Uh, only two men's players with highest Scores in 50 over uh, internationals. That's Rohit Sharma and Martin Guptill. And, uh, yeah, so there she is, top of the women's game and uh, third highest all-time in ODIs. All right, Jeff, uh, nicely done. Thank you, Caroline. If you want to be part of what we do uh, on the Patreon page, on the Discord channel and supporting uh, The Final Word, patreon.com forward slash The Final Word, uh, send in your cricketing numbers and we've got another bumper story time coming up this week. I loved making it last week. I love making it every week, but, uh, yes, that's going along beautifully right now, as is the Discord channel. The best way I can describe it is it is is the friendliest corner of the internet. If you spend a lot of time on Twitter, for example, especially during an election campaign, you you might want to sort of scratch your eyes out. This is the other end of the spectrum. This is where nice people talk about nice things, not just cricket, other things too. Mm -hmm. And lots of people are becoming friends in real life based on the conversations they're having on our Discord channel. I've missed being on there. It's geo-blocked in... Um, well, not geo-blocked. It's, uh, it's just banned in the UAE. You can't mm -hmm. use Discord in the UAE. So I've been able to get on there for the last 10 days or whatever, but I can't wait to return to it when I get back to the UK this time next week. Jeff, that is the end of uh, segment one long extended segment one uh, and when we return I'll be talking to a few cricketers here in Dubai who've been playing in the Fairbreak Invitational Hi I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast it's the final word here in Dubai at the Fairbreak Invitational. Adam Collins with Mariko Hill from Hong Kong. G'day, thanks for coming and having a chat. You took the first wicket in this entire tournament. Uh, you've been part of the Fairbreak movement for a number of years. 
what a great opportunity to be here with some of the best players in the world and not only soaking up that experience, but being part of something that's happening for the first time in front of you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people across the world on television. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me, first of all. And I think I've been part of the whole Fairbreak journey since 2017, 2018. So to see it finally come to fruition is always sort of an eye-opening moment, um, not only for myself, but of course, Sean and the team. How did you first start playing cricket? Like, what's your backstory into the game? So I started playing at the age of 11. Uh, it was more so just playing with my brother. I, I was sort of a tomboy when I was a lot younger. Um, played absolutely every single sport in the world as I think any female athlete started. And then joined the Hong Kong Cricket Club and since then went part of the uh, grassroots program and got selected and scouted with the women's team and represented Hong Kong at the age of 12 and went to Bangladesh for my first tournament. From then, I think um, when you go on tour, with your best friends, with, without your parents and playing the sport that you love, you really don't really look back and from then it's, it's been uphill. So did you, are you a Hong Konger? Did you grow up there yeah, and absolutely. school there and all the rest yes. of it? Yes, so born and bred. Uh, my parents, my mum's Japanese, my dad's English, but right. they're expats in Hong Kong and I was born in, in Hong Kong and raised there. And you had that chance, am I right in saying, back in 2016 to be part of the Big Bash program, the, yes. the associate uh, program? it was a WBBL 01 and that's when the associate rookie program came in and I played for the Melbourne Renegades and that was an incredible uh, two weeks of my life because I played on, alongside Shabim Ismail, Danny Wyatt, so got an insight into professional cricket um, and a I think as an associate cricketer coming into that environment, that really sparked and kick-started all of this. You know, it really shows the disparity, but how far you can sort of climb. And I suppose a willingness to travel to play cricket as well. Like you've been at Melbourne Uni, you studying there. I did exchange there. Did you play cricket in Australia when you were doing that? Yes, I did. So I played two seasons with the Premier Ones for Plenty Valley Cricket Club. Oh, right. So that was in Melbourne and yep, it was yep. incredible cricket then. I remember playing against them many years ago and they were, they were, they were a tough Tough opponent. So it depends recall, which uh, division you're yeah, in. Yeah, it was towards the higher end, if I recall. And um, yeah, they were they were uh, unforgiving, is my recollection, albeit probably 20 <laughs> years ago now. Um, and in, you had to balance off your cricket with having quite a serious academic career as well. So what do you do for a living outside of cricket and the academic side of things? And how do you fit all the pieces in together? It's a common story you hear with women's cricket. Yeah, so I've got a background in sports science and nutrition. So from there, um, I graduated from the University of Hong Kong, did a bit of research in Oxford University and did exchange in Melbourne University. So mm. had a very broad understanding of, I guess, the outer world of Hong Kong when it comes to academics. But when I graduated, I was thinking, what do I do next? And ultimately that went into more of the nutraceutical industry, meaning the supplement industry, because okay. I thought I love, I have a huge passion in sort of performance and how nutrition can influence that. And fortunately, a man called Venkatesh mm -hmm. in Hong Kong, who's an ICC umpire, big advocate of cricket and women's cricket in it specifically, is a big sponsor of Genkor Pacific as well uh, for the Fair Break tournament. And since then, um, I've just been sort of stuck into this supplement industry and helping create formulations for brands. It's been put to me that you love high performance, that like being a part of this for a couple of weeks will do wonders for your game personally. Is that your impression as well, that just being in the same dressing room as some of these stars? Well, in your case, I guess it's Susie Bates, Daddy Wyatt, Marazan Cap. I know she hasn't played, but she's still very much part of it. Is that how you're seeing things? Absolutely. I think um, high performance, always people ask, what does that actually mean? But ultimately, I do think it's about the environment that you're in. So, for example, with the Big Bash, I didn't play a single game, but the environment that I was part of made me better yep. as a human as a player as a cricketer here not only do I get to play do I, I get to train and be in the same hotel so yep. I've been able to do both and 
what you're going to, what you're going into, you explained to me the other day that you're effectively a nomad at the moment. You're living out of a suitcase. You're trying to, again, it's this balancing act, isn't it? Working from a laptop, keeping your cricket ticking on the way you want it to go, trying to keep all the balls in the air, but with no fixed address. I mean, that's a very unusual situation. No man would find themselves a professional or semi-pro player in a situation like that. Yeah, it's, it's been quite difficult, but adaptability is absolutely essential, right? So I can sort of live anywhere in the world, so long as I've got a good suitcase and um, some good coffee, maybe. But <laughs> I actually went to England in September for a business trip for a week. But the day I landed, Hong Kong changed their rules to having to quarantine for 21 days. Right, right. That's impossible. I mean, not impossible, but mentally it's going to be quite a challenge when it comes to not only your physical capabilities, but mentally in the same four walls. For that reason, I stayed in 16 different hotel rooms and Airbnbs since, just hopping around and trying to figure out trainings, asking different teams whether I can bowl at them. And from then, um, yeah, went straight to fair break, really. And... Once you get back to the UK after this, you're one of the players who've already kind of made that transition into the other competitions. Am I right in saying you're playing in the England domestic stuff this year in the 100 and the Hey Ho Fleet and Charlotte Edwards? Actually, no, um, not the 100. Uh, So a couple of weeks ago, my ex-coach from Hong Kong, Richard Waite, asked me to be part of the Northern Diamond setup. Oh, right, okay. That was more just to sort of be a net bowler and be part of that setup. And I think after the three weeks, I made a good impression. And he said, after fair break, why not come up to Leeds again and sort of be part of the squad? Uh, So that was an incredible news for me because I'm in a very unfortunate but fortunate position where I don't have a house yet. I don't live in Hong Kong, I don't live in England, but this allows me to live out my suitcase a little bit longer and I think give professional cricket a crack and um, in the two months, whether it's positive news or negative, it's going to be an incredible experience. Yeah, so you're living out of your suitcase, but you also get a chance to live out your dream, really, isn't it? I mean, the the high-performance environment we referred to before, that's, that's precisely what's been developed in the UK, especially since 2020 with the Rachel Hayhoe-Flint Trophy, Charlotte Edwards Cup, and, and these, these teams around the country. There's a lot of cricket. There's a lot of cricket. I remember last year uh, when the season ended, talking to a few of the England players, and they're like, for the first time ever, we've reached the end of a season, and we're knackered. And that's a good thing. It's a nice feeling, whereas before, maybe there wasn't quite the volume of cricket. And you're going to fall into the slipstream there and probably be knackered as well. It's a matter of, I think, managing your loads now. Because I was talking to a lot of the girls and there's IPL after this. There was a World Cup earlier. Then there's a lot of England set up and trainings and tournaments. So it's a matter of there's so much cricket. Which ones do you pick and choose? For me, it's still not to that phase yet. So it's sort of anything that gets thrown, I say yes. Um, I'm a yes kind of person. So (laughs) we'll see where it takes me. And the Hong Kong national team at the moment, you were soundly beaten by the UAE last week in a bilateral series before fair break. But give our listeners a sense of where you're at as far as, I suppose, maybe not rankings, because rankings are junk. We all know rankings don't mean anything in women's cricket. But like, how competitive are you against some of the, the bigger nations that you play in associate land? And, and what, what does the progression look like next? Like, what's, the, what's the strategic plan for Cricket Hong Kong for the women's team? Where should you be in five years' so time? So what's really insightful is that I see Hong Kong currently where Thailand were a couple of years ago. Okay. So we're at this cusp of having to qualify in the World Cup qualifiers and once we get into that World Cup qualifiers we can give it a real crack. We are constantly competing with UAE who always sort of get the better edge in the match and they unfortunately qualified ahead of us but from then um, it's a matter of just doing a lot more pre-tours and getting the girls together. We're quite fortunate to have 12 girls in fair break so already this is going to be 
incredible for their experience and growth and hopefully we've got the Asia Cup coming up in Malaysia in June so if we win that we then go into the, the, the proper Asia Cup with India, Pakistan, Bangladesh so uh, that's going to be the huge testament in cricket there. Yeah, you think about it, fair break for Hong Kong, you stand to benefit most don't you, 12 of the 90 players it's aligned to Hong Kong cricket, will be in Hong Kong presumably next March provided the the quarantine situation settles yeah. down. I mean, it does mean that you'll have an annual festival where the best players in the world will be on your doorstep. I mean, you could be the country that has the quickest rise here. I think so. And Hong Kong were sort of at the forefront when it comes to sponsoring the grounds for fair break. Yep. So I'm incredibly thankful for that. And the fact that we can actually have 12 girls in Dubai was another positive. I know there was um, last minute changes because of the Hong Kong quarantine, but we've, we've been able to have 12 girls. So that's a huge thing. Yeah. And I guess this, we touched on it before, but being in the dressing room, you'll have these stories to share with your teammates. You'll be able to do more media, more opportunities like this to tell your story and the story of Hong Kong cricket. It, it becomes a bit of a virtuous cycle after a while. Yeah, no, it, it always is. Well, I take Brazil right with Roberta. I mean, I know she's at the, at the extreme end of this because she does so much media, but more people know about the Brazil women's team than they, well, than many men's teams that play, even full member nations. I, I'd hazard a guess that there'd be more understanding of Brazil women's story than maybe the Bangladesh men. And that's crazy, right? Given the volume of cricket that's played relatively. But they've done such a great job of marketing themselves. That, that's part of this, isn't it? I think it's chicken and the egg, as we always talk about. And if we're not seen, we're not heard, we're not going to be known. And the more that media pushes and shows that there is cricket that exists in Hong Kong, then there'll be more traction. There'll be more people wanting to be part of it. There's going to be more sponsorships. And that's where there's going to be an exponential growth in not only the game, but the associate nations will also grow together. When the Irish men went on their run, gosh, it's a while ago now, 15 years ago, the 2007 World Cup's kind of when that story started. Part of it was uh, recruiting players about being savvy about who had an Irish passport, who had a gran- an Irish granny, really. I mean, there'd be a bit of that in Hong Kong, wouldn't there? There'd be a transient well, country. global, yeah. Yeah, global city, transient I say country. You can call it a country. Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah, but the definition around what, what, what constitutes Hong Kong. But still, there'd be a lot of kids who are, I guess, uh, diplomatic parents or military or whatever who, who could... Have you got a bit of an outreach program going there to try and work out we who do. might actually be eligible? We do, because we've got... If you look at the team right now, we've got three from Australia, four from England, one from Pakistan, I'd say, uh, who travels yeah. back and forth, and then very global team that all just gels together and meets on the day of the tournament and from there we kind of just get cracking on on playing cricket but when it comes to training that's where the challenge can be because we all can't be in the same place but we all back each other in what we do and sort of yeah click from day one of the tournament it must be a, a quite an interesting dressing room. You've got a, cu- a couple of trilingual players, I believe, with Urdu, Cantonese, English. It can be quite hard to understand sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, being born and bred in Hong Kong, I don't really speak Cantonese, but I can understand some of the terminologies that they use. So okay. we use English as the common language in all tournaments and at meetings, but it's amazing to be part of a team that speaks eight different languages, I'd say, amongst the, the 14 players. And the men as well, having had the chance to have been on the global stage a little bit more than the women. Uh, and I've been working with Mark Farmer, who's the, the boss of uh, high performance there at, at Cricket Hong Kong. They're going on like a four-month tour in a couple of months. I mean, they, they, you, must, you must take inspiration from the men's side. And also, I, I assume that there's a fair bit of support going the other way. Yeah, they're lucky that they're contracted. Um, yep. All the men get paid from a monthly basis, etc. So they get to, to go on tournaments and be part of, I guess, a four-month stint, which might be a challenge for the women 
training because everyone yep. works full time. So when you look at the setup in Hong Kong, you might train at sort of 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. And it's sort of balancing it on the either end of the morning or the evening and it's just getting it done. But right now it's, it's difficult when we all have full-time jobs and trying to balance full-time cricket as well. That is the next step though, isn't it? It's how do you make the business case, that sounds crude, but you know what I mean, around them paying you as full-time professionals. I know that may not necessarily be what you want because you've got these careers running side by side. That, that could present a challenge but an opportunity at the same time for players like you really who have got this other track in your life. So that's when you have to look at cricket as an enjoyment part. I think once contracts come in, of course that's amazing. That's yep. going to be what we strive for but you also want to try and maintain the enjoyment of the game and the reason why you play is for the passion. You know, we still get to train and tour for free technically, you get paid for for that. But it's it's one of those things where when contracts come in, do we quit our full-time job now? Are we able to really merge into this full-time contract? Will it influence our mental state, the psychology of the game? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that we all really want, 100%. Marika Hill, you are a great ambassador for women's cricket, for Hong Kong cricket. Thanks for talking to us today, and I'm looking forward to uh, following your story in the years ahead. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Roberta Moretti Avery, a veteran of the final word, with Laura Cardoso uh, making her, I was going to say international debut, but no, you've played international cricket, but as a teenager, you're 17 years of age, but here in this invitational tournament against some of the best players in the world. Roberta, we had you on the show about 12 months ago. You've been a very busy woman since then, not only on social media, but the, the Brazilian national team. Uh, bring us up to speed with where you're at at the moment. Yes, very nice to be with you actually in person this time. Yeah. Uh, it has been great 12 months for us. Uh, we have been non-stop in Cricket Brazil with a contract, uh, with other gir- the girls coming and pressing, uh, but also with the ICC World Cup qualifiers that we had last year in Mexico, uh, now fair break, and we have a very busy year ahead as well uh, uh, in front of us. So it's great to be playing tournaments again. So let's go through it. So you had the Americas qualifier for the World Cup that's coming up, but you didn't make it through that stage but you won four of your six games I mean you were an inch away from reaching the next stage qualification that must have been tremendously exciting given where you were a few years ago yes we didn't play any games against the USA or Canada since 2011 as Brazil I never had played against those teams before Uh, and we knew that we had a chance if we played well Uh, we knew USA was was going to be a strong side uh, but it was great to have our first wins versus Canada I know that we had awesome uh, individual performances but also as a team I think we played well uh, we could, were able to show a little bit of what Brazil is doing as contracted players now so yes it, it was very exciting great to be playing cricket internationally again and that win that kind of went viral with the five wickets in the final over or whatever it was louder where you became a name all over the internet immediately what's it like uh, being a match winner like that as a teenager and then the world getting to see you bowl for the first time in such spectacular sort of circumstances uh, so she had no idea that this actually could happen uh, our president Matt Federson uh, spoke to her before the game saying no everything's going to be alright everything's going to work out and uh, when, it, when it actually happened uh, when this big five weeks happened she was able to believe that yes she can be a, a very good sports uh, woman she can be a representative of Brazil she can make good stuff for Brazil and uh, she was very happy with everything that came so Roberta we know your backstory from when we spoke to you on 
the show last year, and it's well known now how, how you found cricket later in life. Laura, other end of her life, I mean, she, as I say, she's still a teenager. How did she end up finding cricket? Is it part of that program you've been running uh, over the last few years there? In 2017, she was part of a community project called the Criança Feliz, which means a happy kid. And uh, Richard, one of the coaches, was coaching uh, her. And uh, he said, okay, you know, we have potential here. So he invited her to go to the club. Uh, so she joined the club in 2018 as part of a, uh, just a pathway for cricket. And then in 2018, she also started calling attention for the national teams. And uh, she was contracted in 2020 with all of us. So she's, she's the representation of the program, what the program can do, how you can get into cricket and become and go through the Brazilian pathway. Yeah, I was going to say that that's the perfect story for you to tell, isn't it? When you've got young girls coming through who might find the game through the program, which we obviously learned about last year and the fact that there are more people playing cricket in that part of Brazil than football, which seems like a staggering fact even now. But to go from there to the national team, there is a roadmap, and you're the example of that for, for kids coming through now. Yes, and uh, she's also going to be part of a university program. So you right. can see... The coaching program. The coaching program. So right. you can see how everything happens. You go uh, to school, you find out what cricket is, you play cricket, you want to know a little bit more, you go to the club, in the club you have like a hundreds of kids playing with the same age group as yours so you can be part of the under 15s under 19s under 21s uh, the women's development program so you can actually find your people in your pathway uh, if you want to play softball cricket for the rest of your life mm. you can if you want to play uh, the current league uh, the local league for the rest of your life you can but if you want to do something more out of cricket you can go and do be player like a like Laura or like other black shirt kids and just yep follow the program. And especially being a left-arm bowler, point of difference. Skitty, you're not that tall. I thought you'd be taller watching you on video, but you get that skitty trajectory and um, can be a point of difference. And hopefully you'll get an opportunity to bowl in this tournament. You haven't bowled as yet? Yeah, she, had, she said her first quality coming here, she thought her strongest suit was as a bowler uh, and she was chosen to bat. So she was a bit surprised by that. <laughs> so were we in the commentary box. I was talking up, maybe we'll see her with a new ball and, and you didn't get a chance yes. to bowl. Yeah. But she's competing with high-level athletes, high-level bowlers no, that, sure. are the yeah. same, uh, that they have the same skills. Uh, but she, uh, whenever she has the opportunity to bowl, she wants to show the world what she came for and uh, to show the Brazilian Brazilian bowling style and uh, she can't wait for it. And you're both here playing for Barmy Army. Roberta, uh, you and I are the same age and my body is broken. I can't play cricket properly anymore. You're still playing as a professional, leading your nation and all the rest of it. Talk us through your game now. I mean, we see all the videos. We, we see your husband, the affectionately known as the bowling machine. And we see you in the nets. We've seen the switch hit, which we want to see uh, at some point during the competition. Actually, I might just go back to that. The switch hit, I thought you invented it, but it's come from, and I should say, by the way, this isn't any normal switch hit. You go 360 and not only get bat left-handed, but you, you do a pirouette in the crease before smacking it out to, I suppose, deep third. A, do you expect to play it soon? B, where does it come from? Uh, and C, uh, how, how about your longevity? Are we still going to see you in four or five years' time? So, uh, yes, the switch hit. Uh, yeah, I think we're always open to play it. Uh, it's not an easy shot to play, but uh, again, if we, the fielder will not know where it's going through. You cannot plan for that shot. No. So why? You have ramp shots, we have sweep hits. Why not a, a switch hit, isn't it? I believe Glenn Maxwell would be happy to see that <laughs> in case we do. I wonder if Maxi's seen your version of the switch hit. We'll send it on to him because yeah. it is iconic. A lot of people thanked him, a lot of people, oh, okay. because he's like the player that yeah, plays 360 yeah. all over. So yes. Uh, but yes, it wasn't us. Uh, I actually got it from the, the 
former captain from Brazil. Right. She played that in the South American Championship in 2010 before I even started playing cricket. And she actually played in the, in, in the game and almost went for four. It was stopped right before the boundary line. So yeah, she 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 did that before. I guess it was a lot more loose balls on the leg side when she played that. <laughs> I do hope that we can see that in the competition or sometime soon. And your longevity. Uh, I suppose the fact that you came to cricket so late, your enthusiasm still at sky high. I mean, you're not you're not bitter and twisted like most people who are sort of in the second half of their thirties. You're you're just desperate to play whenever you can. Yes, I want to play whenever I can. I, I I think when you do what you love, it helps. I absolutely love cricket, uh, and I want to play as for as long as uh, I can. I stopped bowling, which helps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was a bowler, I think the body was feeling much more. But now as a batter, I want to be fit and strong to play and represent Cricket Brazil for as long as I can, but also whenever international opportunities happen, I want to be here to show the Brazilian love, the Brazilian passion, and know that we are not only a football country, we are cricket lovers, and uh, yes, for me, uh, I don't say four or five years, I, I want to play for much longer, so yeah. Love it. The next bit for Brazil, so you were effectively done over by rankings, right? Like you would have progressed to the next stage of the World Cup if not for the fact that your ranking is so low, so you need to play more bilateral cricket, but what's on the calendar coming up? Yes, uh, we, we want to play more. I guess it's two years of quarantine was tough for everyone. Yep. But we are going to play in Rwanda in the Kyubuka tournament oh, uh, in the next 30 days. And it's going to be amazing because we will play countries that we never played before. Yep. Uh, so all these African countries are going to be new for us. Different grounds, different continent. Uh, a lot of girls never got outside Americas. So it's going to be very interesting to see that. And, uh, and I can't wait. Uh, we have Henriette. Henriette Arishimway, who took yes. a wicket first ball. Is she on your team? She's in our team. Right, uh, right. She had, she's so shy, so... So pretty, so is You wouldn't know it from her reaction to taking your wicket. I mean, her face lights up. I mean, one of the highlights of the tournament has been her response to taking your wicket and executing a run out in her follow through. She's so such a quiet girl. You don't expect she has that fierceness and that. And she's amazing. She's very skillful. She doesn't drop a catch. She's she's like awesome. So I'm very happy to have her in the Barry Army. But yes. when we play against Rwanda, that's the player we're going to be watching. Like, uh, yes, watch out for that that little shy girl because she's powerful. So. Yeah, we can't wait to be against these players. Uh, Lauda, for you personally, uh, starting your journey now, I suppose you'd see the fair break as a chance to be a shop window for your skills and uh, maybe get an opportunity in other domestic leagues around the world over the years, like the Big Bash and, and the 100 and other competitions as they, as they evolve. And, and this will be where you get to, to show the world on television what you can do. She says it's a very good opportunity for her to be here, to play against better players and to learn from better players as well. And uh, if she gets to play domestic leagues, it's going to be not only a big uh, winning point for her, a conquer for her, but also a process, a process of development. She's very young, so she's just starting. So it's going to be a very nice development process for her. And then last but not least, we're going to come to Brazil uh, next year as a final word team. We don't quite know how we're going to do it yet. Uh, we were talking with the Thailanders guys last year about maybe joining forces and getting one big tour group together. Hopefully we can do that with travel restrictions uh, becoming a bit of a less of a thing. But you're going to have to organise, I don't know, maybe half a dozen games for us in Brazil? Of course, we can't wait for that. Since what you guys said, and the Thailanders guys said, we can't wait for it. We can't yeah. wait to show you Brazil. Like, uh, what, because what we have in cricket is like a, a very happy, passionate, uh, fun, sunny cricket. And I think that's what makes us fall in love because the environment is absolutely awesome. The people are absolutely nice. And you can have like cricket uh, with a pool right next to you, having a nice sip of caipirinhas and this beautiful sun. So yeah, we can't wait to share this with the cricket lovers like you guys in Brazil. So yes, we, we, we will 
we arrange all the games that you guys need and to show us the pro- show you guys the project is going to be awesome. Yeah, I can assure you that Jeff and I wear our, our Cricket Brazil baseball caps everywhere we go uh, during the summer. We're representing, and, and as we should, because you are in, in a in a cynical, skeptical world. Uh, you are a force for good. Uh, your passion for the game, your smiley disposition, the way you're recruiting people to play it's it's actually inspirational. So thank you for all that you're doing with Brazil cricket to both of you and uh, good luck for the rest of the tournament and can't wait to, to stay in touch uh, through the course of both of your adventures in the game. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you in, in person now. Yes, yeah, it's going to be a great tournament. I'm just chuffed to have another Winifred on the show. We, you, we've heard from my Winnie in the background over the journey, doing her thing on tape and all the rest of it. But far more importantly, Winifred Durisingham from Malaysia, the Malaysian captain, you've been a star of the Fairbreak Invitational. Thank you for coming and having a chat with us. Thank you, no problem. Now, I think you pretty much burst onto the social media scene a few days ago when taking three for 24 against the Warriors, picking up Georgia Redmayne, Suna Loose, two huge international wickets, then winning the player of the match, winning the, the, uh, the smart watch and, and, the, and the campaigning from your teammates for that. Give us a sense of uh, what an incredibly special night that was in your career. Uh, it was actually a special night for me because playing in a high level like this, playing with uh, players which we saw on TV, but now playing with them is something special for me to be at this stage and to get the support from them when I won that watch was like something which pumped me up more. Because uh, having to get like Stephanie Taylor, Sophie Devine and all supporting me is something rare, you know, you don't get that. In Malaysia you get your teammates, but here you get some superstars supporting you. How great was that? Yeah, and I think especially at the end, the fact that Stefani Taylor threw the ball to you for the death overs. Remember, at the time, they were one down starting the final five. They were in cruise control, and she trusted you to bowl what proved to be the, the decisive over of the match, the 16th over, I think it was. How did that feel, having the faith of your captain on you know, international television saying, no, no, we're going to trust you to be the player at the crucial time? Yeah, that was like uh, shocking because for her to give me to bowl in that uh, important over because the 17th over was a very crucial over yeah. because they were going against us at that stage they only had one wicket in hand but then she gave me the ball she said this is your your chance your day and I said okay and to myself I said I will do it and I will show it to my team that I can do it for them and everything went well for me and it all stick to the plan. And after the game when you were standing out there on the field and your teammates were chanting, watch for Winnie, watch for Winnie and all that kind of wonderful energy around you and being the match winner and wanting you to be player of the match, have you had a chance to kind of reflect on that moment and what might be that turning point in your career? Yeah, uh, at that stage, at the 17 over after the end, end of the over and they were saying, watch for me, we have to help Winnie to get that watch, get that watch and I was like, okay, this is the time for me to so that I can bowl in a 19 over and I, maybe I could get another wicket so and they were telling we have to help Winnie get that watch get that watch so the whole time they were going we have to help her we have to help her and they did they did support me so much and it's really great opportunity for me to be at that that time then. Now it's not as though you've just started playing cricket or anything you're 29 years old you began playing the game at, at 17 what's your story how did you first find the game and and what's it like being a, a Malaysian player give us a sense of what it is uh, week in week out or month in month out being a Malaysian women's cricketer I started playing at the age of 10 outside the streets with my 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 siblings 
my uncle was my first coach. That is how I began my cricket career and I started playing for the national team at the age of 14 until today which is been 15 years since I played for the national team and it's a really great opportunity for me to be here to play in this fabric. So I would like to say thank you to Sean for inviting me to play in this fabric. It's a really great opportunity for me to play in higher level cricket which I was dreaming for so long to play in this stage which we every time say I would like to play in the IPL. I would like to play in the like the fabric was uh 4 years back I think which we they had two teams and they were going on like planning. So I was saying that uh I was hoping that I would get the chance and one day I got that opportunity and it's a really great honor for me and back home uh, we train as a team and the team there I hope more girls watch and also get like uh, more experience like this and so that our team can go in higher level as well and it's a really great opportunity that people back home And even though it's been the time difference but people back home supporting you and it's a really great great uh, fun to be and yeah I really enjoy it and I suppose that contrast between I mentioned before the the, the enormous TV audience around the world watching you play uh, through the last how many days it's been now compared to the cricket you would normally play like how often do the Malaysian women get to play and how often are you together training as a team Uh now we actually uh, train a lot together but now I also started my job working so I get less time training with them but they carry on their training so that's a good sign but I hope to go back and share my knowledge with them from what I got here And what do you do work-wise? What have you been studying and what do you do for a living now? Uh, now I'm uh, actually a school teacher which I just started uh, two months back Before this I was a student and a player but now it's totally different working and playing. Right. So it's something different for me but I'm thankful that I've got a very supportive school, supportive teachers and they support me and they say carry on go and play your game you love. So how do you think this will will change your career? I mean obviously you'll return back to the Malaysian national team after that but the experience of playing alongside champions like Stefani Taylor your your captain right now how do you think that'll that'll influence the next stage of your career? I hope uh, from my performance here I hope to play in uh, like more higher level as well and play in different leagues more other uh, say if I get a chance to play in the WBBL or the IPL so I hope that will change my whole career as a cricketer as well for which I was dreaming for so long so I hope that comes true one day for me and do you think there's any prospect of there being professional contracts for Malaysia's women like where's that positioned at the moment in terms of receiving kind of payment for playing which might make things a bit easier in terms of that balancing act with work and study for your players now we actually been contracted for a year and a bit are they full time contracts yes yes oh right i didn't realize that i thought they might be like stipend but it's a, a proper so you'll ha- you've got two full time jobs then yeah Wow, so okay. I'm in a cricket uh, spe- also we have been contracted so about one and a half years back and yeah that's the beginning for our for our uh, Malaysian cricket women team as well and a good start so after we got the contract we could see a lot of changes from the girls and a lot of 
hard work from them and I hope they carry on the work and they'll be here someday like me as well. Uh, you've got some more cricket to play in this competition. You'll probably make the finals, which will be very exciting again. But what comes after that in terms of your commitments with Malaysia? Who do you play next? Uh, next, I think uh, we'll be having the tri-series, I think, uh, just after this tournament. So it'll be Nepal, Malaysia and Uganda, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. And of course, I did tell you before that you are the, the, the second Winifred ever to play international cricket behind Winifred Leach, who uh, played a couple of test matches back in 1951 for England against Australia and did, did quite well, actually. You'll have to do some research on her career and uh, learn a bit more about her. Yeah, I've heard about it just recently. I think I heard from you, you talked yep. about it. And I will go and do some research about her and get to know, like, read what, how was her cricket career before this. And hopefully you'll inspire my Winnie. You can probably hear in the background on, on the tape now, running around with my colleague Georgie Heath, that maybe you can inspire her to be an international cricketer one day. Yeah, I'll try to speak to her after this and see how we go, get along. Fantastic. Thank you, Winnie. You've put in a, a quite inspirational performance here at Fairbreak. You've made a lot of people very happy. Uh, good luck for the rest of the tournament and thanks for joining The Final Word. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Final Word with Adam Collins signing off after that uh, conversation with Winifred Durasingham from Malaysia. I had my daughter on my lap a moment ago. She's just climbed off to, to see everybody else here in the lobby. In fact, she's going to have a chat uh, down the phone to uh, Sam, who's looked after all the logistics here at Fairbreak. Uh, he's looking at his daughter down the screen. It's a lovely family-friendly tournament, a lot of passion. As you can tell from the Associate Nation players we had on today, uh, Mariko Hill, Roberta moretti Avery, friend of the show, and Laura Cardoso. You're going to hear a lot more from those three women and Winifred as well. Winifred Durasingham was telling me this is the first Winnie she's ever met in the flesh my girl which was kind of cool so hopefully they can have a friendship into the future. Just got a couple of nice pictures as well. In signing off thanks to the team at Bad Producer Productions for all they do for us week in week out thank you to everybody who supports what Jeff and I do on Patreon patreon.com forward slash the final word to get your nerd pledge in. We'll have more of those coming up this week on Storytime and to everybody who listens to us loyally week in week out thank you one and all this has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon can't wait to do it all again on the weekend bye from Dubai I had to go about it.